Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Timothy Hampton about his book, Bob Dylan, How the Songs Work. Timothy, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Andy. It's great to be here. Uh, so a lot of books about Bob Dylan sort of treat him in, you know, socio-historical terms as the kind of prophet of a generation. Uh, but your book is almost a new critical approach where you really anchor it in close readings of Dylan's songs. What made you want to take that approach? Well, I wanted to think about um, Dylan as an artist. Um, I mean, he, there's so much kind of fog around his personality and his life. Um, which people get very fascinated by. And I wanted to say, see what this guy was actually doing at really the kind of level of, uh, of almost technique in a certain kind of way. And, and, and it really came out of um, uh, an experience I had where I was teaching uh, uh, to so- students in a poetry class. I was teaching uh, his song, Tangled Up in Blue, um, and which makes reference to a, a, a so-called Italian poet who is the Italian poet Petrarch from the 14th century. And um, uh, I started looking at the lyrics of the song and I realized that each verse of the song was 14 lines long, divided into six lines and eight lines and six lines. In other words, each verse of Dylan's song, which was about, which mentions Petrarch, who's a great writer of sonnets, was itself a sonnet. So that the song was a a little collection of sonnets. And I thought, wow, yeah, he is thinking very carefully about form, which is not at all the kind of thing we think that Bob Dylan would be interested in. We usually think of him as this kind of guy who's got this kind of massive vocabulary and these incredible streams of images that just come out of his head. But here he's thinking very carefully about the form, about the rhyme scheme, about all these kinds of things. So I started going back through the catalog and looking very carefully at how the songs unfold. And... Um, you know, there was no song that I got close to that wasn't surprising in some kind of way or another in terms of what he was doing with, 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 with uh, uh, the tradition of, with the shape of the popular song, with the resources of the popular song. And so at that point, I thought, well, what if I were to just try and think about him as an artist? I mean, he's a very great artist. And let's see how he does what he does in the same way that you would ask yourself how Orson Welles makes a film or how... Uh, uh, or how Picasso puts a canvas together, and people hadn't done that with Dylan. So I thought it would be it would be fun to get as close as I could, and also to think about how words and music shape each other and put pressure on each other. I mean, again, Dylan is often thought of as a kind of musical primitive, um, uh, but he's actually very subtle and very sophisticated in his use of different song forms. So I thought, okay, how how do how does how do harmony and melody, how do those things shape the lyric and vice versa? And I wanted to try and see if I could write something that would not be technical in any way. I mean, it's not a book of musicology, and I'm not a trained musicologist, though I, I, I know a certain amount about music theory. But could I write something that would be comprehensible to people who didn't know anything about music, but would just call things to their attention to help them listen better? And and conversely, could I could I say something about the lyrics that would not be incomprehensible to somebody who doesn't know a lot about poetry, you know? So mm-hmm. I wanted to try and kind of hit a middle ground and see if I could bring those two aspects of his work together. Right. Yeah. That was something I really appreciate about your book that you don't just treat Dylan as a, as a poet who happens to sing, right? right? right. But you really take seriously that yeah. we, we yeah. have to think of him as a songwriter specifically. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that, um, was, that, yeah. And that was the thing. The idea was, you know, Dylan, his, his vehicle of expression is not poetry. He's not an essayist or a novelist. He's a songwriter. So we have to say, what is the song as a form in the same way that when we think about Samuel Beckett, we want to think about him as a playwright or a dramatist or a, or a novelist. So, or Pablo Neruda, we think of him as a poet. So, so, you know, what does that mean to be a songwriter and what are the tools at Dylan's disposal and how does he use those tools? You know, the chorus, the verse, the, the bridge, whatever it is uh, that he's using. In that context, do you see Dylan's Nobel Prize as, in a way, a, a Nobel Prize to songwriting as a form? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I would think so. You know, and we could think about, if we take a larger view of the Nobel Prize, I mean, and I don't, you know, I'm not really interested in the sort of guessing games about whether he, he quote unquote, deserves the Nobel Prize. I mean, there are people who won the Nobel Prize who were really terrible writers, um, <laughs> and great writers who never did, of course. Yeah. Um, um, but I, you know, if we look at the Nobel Prize in the kind of largest history there, and if we look at 20th century and 21st century art in the largest history, I mean, there is a tradition of, of kind of perf av sort of avant-garde performance art of people who want to get off the page, who want to get out in the street, who want to, uh, uh, who want to uh, think of art as a form of action or a form of performance. And um, though there's no reason that why those people's work shouldn't be taken as seriously as the work of someone like William Faulkner, who sits in his study and, you know, writes these very dense novels. So I think that, I think, I think you're right. I think it's an expansion of the, of the realm of what literature would be. I think that was the idea behind the, behind the Nobel prize, I guess. And, and that it is then a way of saying, look, let's look at the song. I mean, the song is, is the popular song is a legitimate form, a serious form. And whether it's Dylan or Lennon and McCartney or uh, whoever you want to, Leonard Cohen, whoever you want to isolate, some of these people are extraordinarily sophisticated and extraordinarily original. And they've really shaped our consciousness as much or if, not as much, but as more than, than so-called high literature. So we need to recognize that. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of popular notion that Dylan's best work is the work of the kind of mid 60s, maybe going up into an album like Blood on the Tracks. But your book really uh, kind of starts at the beginning and ends, you know, <laughs> a couple years ago. I mean, you can't you couldn't write about uh, his his current album from this year, Rough and Rowdy Ways. But you 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 write up up until, you know, the point where where you published the book in 2019. So what do you is interesting about the work that he has released since, you know, 1975 that is maybe less well known, but is still excellent? Yeah, that thank you. That's uh, that's that's a, that's a great question. I really think that I mean, Dylan, Dylan suffered. Dylan went through sort of two phases that 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 hurt his popularity in a certain kind of way, or at least his the image of him in the kind of popular imagination. The first, of course, was his conversion to evangelical Christianity in the late 1970s, the beginning of the 1980s, um, and when he released these, this album called Slow Train Coming and, and turned his, his stage show into a kind of gospel show. Um, and, and that was one of the challenges in the book. Uh, that gospel music is not often taken very seriously by Dylan fans. Many people turned away from him when he embraced evangelical Christianity. 
and uh, a lot of people think that the songs are just too ideologically rigid and preachy and annoying. Um, and so the one, one of the challenges of writing the book was to see if I could say something about that music, because there hasn't been a lot that's been written uh, that's sort of detailed and nuanced about that body of music. And I didn't know it very well at all until I got to that that moment in, in the book. And I sort of took a deep breath and said, okay, I'm going to have to listen to this stuff really carefully and see if I can say something about it. And I was, again, just blown away at the beauty of some of those songs. I mean, they're not all great, but there's, a, there's an extraordinary amount of wonderful stuff. And whatever you may think of his, the kind of moral and ethical positions that he's taking uh, uh, around the sort of preachiness of some of the songs, we could also note that he's connecting to a very old musical tradition, which is the tradition of gospel, which was one of the traditions he had not explored really in his earlier work. He'd explored the blues, he'd explored folk music, ballads, rock and roll, Chicago blues. He'd never really explored gospel, so now he's exploring gospel. And I and that body of work was was very was a revelation to me. Um, and in the late '80s, of course, he kind of fell off the earth as a lot of 1960s era yeah. rock stars did, right? Uh, the 80s were a hard time for most of the time. They were a hard time. You know, it, was, yeah. it was Reaganism. It was the post. It was after punk. It was, there was disco and then there was punk. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people just sort of faded. And he did a lot of crazy, you know, things that were not very successful. But starting in the, in the early 90s, uh, he released a couple of unaccompanied uh, albums uh, of just him and the guitar and harmonica playing old folk songs one called Good As I've Been To You and the other called World Gone Wrong. And those records, which nobody really paid much attention to at the time, uh, are really interesting. And they sort of, I, this is my reading, sort of reoriented him a bit and got his feedback on the ground. And then at the toward the end of the 1990s, he released a really a suite of about four records, uh, Time Out of Mind, um, Modern Times and Love and uh, Theft. Uh, uh, Love and Theft are the three that I that I know best. Um, there's another one called Together Through Life and then Tempest. But those first three, I think those are as good as anything he's ever done. I think that you know, I mean, they didn't have the same uh, you know bang or or or, or impact that say <clears throat> Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde had in the mid 1960s. But the, at the level of craft and uh, expansion of what he was doing and experimentation of uh, the sound of them is extraordinary. I think they're very, very beautiful records and I think they're, uh, um, they're really worth listening to. So, so I really came around to this later work. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and that was part of the fun of working on the, uh, on the project. Of course, I'm brokenhearted that I didn't get a chance to <laughs> write about the most recent record, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which I think is 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 fabulous, and and um, I did write a few blog, a couple of blog posts here and there about the song "Murder Most Foul," which I think is a major major work, and uh, that came out in March. It was released in March, and I was sort of the 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 press was working to release the book in paperback as the song was being released, and I was sort of running after them, saying, "Wait, wait!" Um, but but the new album wasn't out; it didn't come out until June, mm -hmm. so there was no way that the timing would have worked for me to kind of add a chapter on rough and rowdy ways. But obviously if uh, at some later date, you know, it would be great to do that because I think it's, it's a remarkable piece of writing and, yeah, and I love welcome that at this moment, you know, needed at this moment, I think.
Yeah, yeah, that that song coming out in March was just such a balm. Yeah. And it happens to take, it's 17 minutes long, which yeah. turns out to be about as long as it takes me to do the dishes. So <laughs> that's been on heavy rotation in my house. Yeah, well, there, there are some certain songs like that where they just, at a certain time of day, you return to them again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also make an argument for the political significance of Dylan's work. And that's obviously, you know, an argument you can make fairly easily about Blowing in the Wind or even later songs like Hurricane or, you know, Working Man's Blues. But you really want to kind of make the case for Dylan as a a political artist, even when he's not working in that topical song form. So what do you see as the being the political stakes of what he's up to? Yeah, well, I think that that's I mean, in some way, that's kind of uh, one of the one of the challenges of the book is, or one of the kind of claims of the book that might seem a little controversial is that I think that some of the least uh, political work is in some ways the most political work. I mean, he's a great, first of all, he's a great um, explorer of the way in which we think about the past and the way in which we think about history and memory. Uh, he's an historical poet at a certain level, right? Um, there, he has He's fascinated by historical events, certainly fascinated by the American Civil War, but other, but other events as well. And he thinks very much about how we understand, what are the forms through which we understand the past? Um, how, do we know, how do we know our own history? How do we know our own uh, identity? And <clears throat> those issues are often explored, those issues which I would think of as being political issues, are often explored in songs that are not explicitly about protesting anything. They're just about thinking about the past. Um, even a song like My Back Pages, which in some ways is taken as the kind of manifesto of his turn away from um, uh, away from protest music, you know, is a song about thinking about what is a back page and, and, and what is my memory and what is my relationship to who I am. Um, similarly, of course, he's a great reflector on power and who has power, who is in power, who's out of power, um, uh, who has control of the story, who has control of the images and those are, those kinds of issues are often addressed in love songs and, and, you know, he's asking us to think about how we relate to each other, and and what are what what we, what we owe each other. I mean, even a song like a song a song like "Visions of Joanna," which seemingly has nothing to do with anything with politics, but it's about uh, it's about it's about debt and gifts and obligations. Those are issues that one can expand easily into a more political kind of realm, but they're just explored in a different kind of vocabulary. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one of the things that you really call our attention to in the book is how sort of collage-like Dylan's songwriting is, that there are these references to a kind of dizzying array of of other uh, writers and other musicians in his work. Yeah. Does it make sense to think of Dylan as a kind of postmodernist? Uh, n- I, I'm not sure. I don't think so. <laughs> and, um, and pardon me for hedging my bets here. I think of him. I think of him as a kind of late modernist. I think of mm-hmm. him as a kind of. I mean, if we think of those, you know, those Picasso paintings where you know a pipe and a, a and a guitar and a, 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 a newspaper clipping are stuck next to each other, or where we're, where we think of the kind of collage that that many artists practiced in the nineteen sixties. Um, I think it's much more that a kind of late modernist. Um, uh, reflection on memory. I mean, postmodernism, and and I may be wrong. Postmodernism has always seemed to sort of accept easily the fact that we live in a mediascape, 
and that somehow everything is mediated by the media. Everything is already structured. Everything has already been said. Everything has already been done. I think Dylan's aware, certainly aware of that, but I don't think he thinks that that's necessarily a good thing. I mean, he he has a kind of moral compass. There's a there's an Old Testament kind of Jeremiah-like judgment in in much of Dylan's work that seems very unpostmodern to me. I mean, he casts a very cold eye on most of what what is going on today and uh, and has now for 50 years. And that kind of stability of a sort of position of, of, of casting judgment, even as you're acknowledging the kind of swirl of information that's around you, that doesn't quite seem postmodern in the way that mm-hmm. I would tend to think of postmodern. I mean, you, you, you may have a different take on it, but that would be what I would say. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And certainly collage has a, a very uh, august modernist heritage. Indeed, you know, I mean, yeah. Joyce sees plenty of collage and Elliot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I think of him coming much more out of someone like Elliot than, um, than I do, you know, out of, I don't know, um, Don DeLillo or whoever. Pick your sure. modern writer. Yeah. And one thing about his references that I've always found really perplexing is that a lot of them are sort of wrong. Like you mentioned the line about Petrarch, but I think he gets the century wrong that Petrarch lived in. And uh, in in I Dreamed, I saw St. Augustine. He has a verse about St. Augustine being put to death, which never happened. Never happened. Yeah. Um, What do you make of that? I mean, obviously, you know, he's a very smart and well-read guy and he could... He yeah. could make the reference correct if he wanted to. So I assume there's some reason why he doesn't. What, what, what do you make of that? I I have no idea. And actually, <laughs> I mean, except that he, 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 you know, I guess he wants us to, you know, to check our facts and to think about things. He's certainly a fabulist. He wants to throw people off his trail, right? Somebody, mm-hmm. you know, he wrote this memoir in 2004 called Chronicles Volume 1, and somebody is... I read somewhere sort of checked all the facts and sort of none of them are right. You know, he's he'll say, you know, in such and such a month I did this and people look at it and they say, well, no, it says here, you know, he's actually, it was actually July. It wasn't, you know, September. Yeah. I'm so, so I, I'm not quite sure. It's such a perverse um, kind of thing that uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I will say that, you know, he's very much not interested in revealing himself. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's remember that his, his album called Self-Portrait for 1970 was a collection of covers of songs by other people. And, you know, you, I mean, he was, in that sense, he was very postmodern because he realized that we are all collections of quotations, um, that to put a, a paint a portrait of ourselves is not to give some sort of deep, intimate image of some kind of unreachable or inexpressible subjectivity, but it's really to collect the songs and stories and pictures that have made us what we are and to kind of bring them together. And each of us is a different collection of those kinds of things. That seems to me extremely insightful. And, and it's quite in, quite in opposition to what a lot of people were doing in the 19, the beginning of the 1970s, late 1960s, which was to tell us everything private about their lives, right? Mm -hmm. The details of John Lennon's, you know, sex life or James Taylor's, you know, drug addiction and blah, 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 blah. And Dylan says, okay, here's self-portrait. It's a collection of, you know, here's a Gordon Lightfoot song and here's a, here's a Hank Williams song and, and here's a Roger Miller song. Um, that's again, it's a kind of masking technique, but it's a, it's a sort of different, more oblique form of self-expression. Um, that he that keeps the world at some distance, and that seems 
pretty characteristic of his work. Yeah. I mean, so maybe the falsification of facts is part of it. An interesting story about the reference to Petrarch in uh, Tangled Up in Blue, which is, in fact, as you say, the wrong century. Um, it, uh, he was he was asked in an interview, "Who is the Italian poet?" Because it could it could potentially have been Dante, who was Petrarch's predecessor. Though Tangled Up in Blue doesn't feel at all like it's got anything to do with you know going through hell or anything. But mm-hmm. he was asked about uh, uh, about who the Italian poet was, and he said Plutarch. Is that his name? So you know, Plutarch is this late, <laughs> late <laughs> Greek writer who wrote the right. lives of the noble Greeks and the noble Romans, right? So it's like even when he's asked to give this, give us the straight line, he doesn't give us the straight line, right? He gives an even wronger answer, right. even wronger. He confuses yeah. Plutarch and Petrarch. You know, he may. I mean, it's easy to confuse them, and it's you know, this is a guy who you know could got a lot on his mind that it, maybe it's an honest mistake, but maybe, but it's hard. It's just hard to know. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of his pose too, that he never wants to seem like he's like an intellectual in the way that Leonard Cohen presented himself as this yeah. sort of like, you know, left bank Parisian almost, right. Yeah, that he has that sort of every man charm to him. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think, you know, I, he's a, he's a tricky guy because he kind of wants, I, I think I say this at some point in the book, he, he yeah. wants to have it both ways, right. He wants to be he wants to be popular, but he doesn't want to be mainstream. He mm-hmm. wants to be, uh, he wants to be, he wants to guard his own privacy, but he doesn't want to be obscure. He wants to be, you know, loved, but he doesn't want to be adored. And so he's he's always trying to sort of calibrate, you know, he doesn't want to be Michael Jackson, but he doesn't want to be, you know, some totally obscure folk singer playing in, 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 you know, in bars in West Texas either. He wants, he wants to be somewhere in the middle. So he's always trying to calibrate it in such a way as to have both things. So you're right. He's incredibly intellectually seems to have read everything. Um, but he doesn't ever want to come off as an intellectual and, 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 you know, the Nobel prize, as you know, obviously was something that made him feel very uncomfortable. He wasn't sure what to do when he was, when, when he received it and he didn't respond and everyone got very upset. Um, but you know, the, the ultimate, uh, um, the ultimate gesture of being accepted into the establishment is winning the Nobel prize for literature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, Oh my God, what am I going to do now? You know? There's a line in the song Sarah where Dylan sings writing sad-eyed lady of the lowlands for you. And that's just always struck me as like a really weird line because it's Dylan speaking as Dylan. Yeah. Which then is only weird when you realize that like, that's the exception for Dylan where it's the rule for, you know, almost everyone else, (laughs) especially at that time, the mid seventies. So do you, do you see that stuff as being a sort of, you know, like the, I'm basically thinking of blood on the tracks and desire. Do you think of those as being, his sort of version of a of a Joni Mitchell album, or is he up to something a little trickier there? Well, he he might be up to something a little tricky with "Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands" because, according to Al Cooper, most of the lyrics to that song were written in a hotel room in Nashville. Um, he wasn't staying up for days in the Chelsea Hotel, at least according to Al Cooper. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there's the 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 blonde on blonde uh, sessions have been pretty carefully, cal- uh, you know. Um, documented and supposedly he went down there and had didn't have the songs and uh and there's a story i think saturday Low, lowlands was one of the first ones that they cut and 
And he kept the band waiting for hours and hours and hours because he was trying to finish the lyrics in the hotel room um, with hanging out with Al Cooper. And then he came down and, you know, played it. And he didn't even tell the band that it was going to be 12 minutes long. And they kept wanting to, they kept thinking that it was going to be two verses. So they were kind of waiting to wind it up and (laughs) go on and on and on. So there was no kind of rehearsal. There was no sort of like, you know, get ready for it. This is what's coming. So, so, you know, that even that confessional moment, you know, could be, could be deceptive. I don't, you know, I don't know. Like I say, I'm not really that interested in documenting his life, but, mm-hmm. but that mid seventies work is interesting in some kinds of ways. I, I mean, it's, there's no doubt that, um, the blood on the tracks is an account of the breakup of his first marriage at some level. I mean, I try and argue that, that it's real importance, or at least it's importance for me, uh, is that it's much more a reflection on the, on the sixties and on, on the, on the entire experience of a generation. Um, and so it does have a kind of socio-political dimension to it, but, it, but, you know, it, it must be at some level, it's that, um, his son, Jacob has said that it's very painful for him to listen to that record because it, he, he hears things that are, that are very close to home. Um, uh, desire, the, the neck, the following record, the 1976 record is a bit trickier because it is tied into the bicent the American bicentennial business. There are references to the bicentennial in ISIS, where the guy says, uh, we'll be back by the 4th. I mean, that's a reference to the 4th of July. Um, And Sarah is really the only kind of autobiographical song on that record. It's the last one, though it seems in some way to be counterbalanced by ISIS, which is a kind of mythological uh, account of a broken love affair that sort of is, is repaired in some kind of way. So those two songs seem to speak to each other in different um, different registers. I mean, my take on Desire is that it's it's really an attempt to kind of figure out what to do in the mid-1970s. Uh, and it's the only album where he, inter- it's, or it's the album where he introduces all of these strange, exotic locales, right? There's a song that takes place in Mexico. There's another one that takes place on a South Sea island. Um, it's like it's coming, uh, it's like he's introducing this kind of theme, these kind of romance themes and exotic themes. Of course, he wrote it with Jacques Levy. So that there, that may have had something to do with it. But, um, but it's a quite, it's a quite strange follow up to Blood on the Tracks in some way. Mm hmm. Another kind of high point in Dylan's career is the kind of electric trilogy in the mid sixties. Um, and the lyrics on those albums get pretty surreal, uh, even compared to, you know, I mean, I I think of another side of Bob Dylan as being kind of the turning point away from his kind of folk period, but then the, the next three albums are really a whole different ballpark, uh, even from going off of another side, what accounts for the power and lasting appeal of, of those three records? Boy, if we knew that, Andy, <laughs> we would have made a real breakthrough. Well, let me let me get, let me put it to you a different way. Yeah. Why, how does his songwriting change and evolve on those yeah. three records yeah. relative to what came before? Right. Yeah. So uh, it does. Um, I mean, uh, he he really develops this style that I call a visionary style. Um, he's very interested in the tradition of visionary poetry. He always has been a poet like Blake. Uh, even a poet like Dante, I, I I make the claim that he's very much under the sway of the French symbolist poet Rambeau at this time. In fact, I, I 
show that he quotes Rambo off and on in a couple of the songs. Um, this Ginsburg idea, too, right? He put Ginsburg in that lineage. Well, yeah, certainly, yeah. And, yeah. and I think what I mean, he learned, he learned a lot of what he knows about poetry from Ginsburg, and 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 Ginsburg seems to have been almost a kind of teacher to him. I mean, there are stories of when he was in living in Woodstock after his motorcycle accident of Ginsburg just kind of showing up with bags of books and saying, you need to read this, you need to read this. Um, maybe I mean, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. <clears throat> but obviously a, a poem like Howl is extremely important um, for Dylan. Um, but there's this sense of this, this uh, poetic technique of of these kind of clusters of images that get piled up on top of each other. And they really become a kind of shorthand for sort of social and political critique. So that whereas in 1963 or 64, he might've written an entire story about somebody being betrayed in a particular kind of way, he'll now just reduce that to, you know, some kind of name that he'll drop or some kind of quick, little um, vignette that he'll throw in. I mean, you think of a song like Desolation Row, which is just one kind of little story after another, after another, where he mobilizes all of these figures from pop culture and from literature like Romeo and, and Einstein. And, and they become a kind of shorthand for raising bigger issues. That seems to be to be characteristic of that writing. And it's, it's a great discovery on his part. It's one of the things that makes him easy to parody because then you can start writing your own songs and throw in references to, you know, Donald Duck and whoever you want. Um, and he abandons it, of course, in 1967 when he releases John Wesley Harding, which is exactly the opposite of those albums. Very stripped down. The song, none, not one of those songs even has a chorus. Um, they don't have refrains. They don't have conclusions. They're like these little kind of almost very, very min minimalist poems. Um, so it's clear that he felt that at some level he'd reached a kind of dead end, maybe with Blonde on Blonde, too many references, too many visionary scenes, too many hallucinations. And at a certain point, you know, you sort of go off the rails. At the same time, I mean, you asked earlier about the power of those. I mean, just the the, the originality of some of that writing is astonishing. I mean, I was, mm -hmm. I was listening the other day to uh, the title song on Highway 61 Revisited, you know, Highway 61 Revisited, which begins, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Uh, I mean, where does that come from, right? The story right. of Abraham, Abraham now is a kind of small town thug who's who's scaring the hell out of uh, uh, or God is a small town thug who's sort of terrifying Abraham, a kind of mafia story. Um, and it's put over this kind of Chuck Berry, you know, 12 bar blues rock and roll. I mean, it, in some ways, it, it just seems to me one of the most original pieces of writing that I know. And, and, and to have taken, to take Chuck Berry, to take a Chuck Berry groove and, and graft that kind of writing onto it was really an, ex an extraordinary gesture, it seems to me. And I think that's one of the reasons why those albums are so consistently surprising, even now. Yeah. And very funny, too. Those albums have a lot of great jokes. Oh, they're full of jokes. Yeah, they're full of jokes. And and part of the fun is, at least for me, because I'm a little slow, is that the more I listen to them, the more I, the more I get the jokes. I say, oh, I see. Now I understand what he's saying. Mm -hmm. I didn't get it 20 years ago, but now I do. And and so they really they really are a gift that keeps on giving. The more you listen to them, the more you pick things up. I'm going to have to ask you for an example of one of those. What's a, what's a line that has sort of uh, finally made sense to you after decades of listening to it? 
Uh, so yeah, that's a good question. So so I could never figure out in Desolation Row why Einstein, disguised as Robin Hood, um, with his memories in a trunk, uh, da da da, whatever, whatever, um, he, he he goes off uh, uh, he goes off sniffing grain pipes and reciting the alphabet. Right? I thought well, I don't know I don't know what to make of. Mm-hmm. Sniffing grain pipes part, but the receipt. Why is he reciting the alphabet? Well, obviously because E equals mc squared, right? <laughs> and right. that's that's the Einstein formula for the theory of relativity. And I and I had never understood. You know, I never got that. And I, I'm sure that all my friends in high school got it immediately. But 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 it was many years later that I said, oh, of course, that's why Einstein's reciting the alphabet because you know he's a physicist and he came up with a famous formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I one of the lines that kind of jumped out to me a couple of years ago, and I was like, "Oh, it's a joke!" is uh, in Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat when he says it it balances on your head like a mattress balances on a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, right, it doesn't. Right, exactly, it doesn't. Right, right, yeah. Um, you you tr- kind of trace a surprising influence. I mean, Rimbaud seems, uh, you know, I, I I can definitely see that, but you also write about his being influenced by Brecht. Yeah. Um, what's the, what's the story there? Well, the story there is, um, it, certainly there's a biographical aspect to it. Uh, we know that he read Brecht. We know that in the, in, in the village in Greenwich village in the early sixties, Brecht was a big deal as the great Marxist playwright and poet, possibly less poet at that point than playwright. And, and the songs from the three penny opera, were all over the place. Uh, Will, uh, um, Louis Armstrong, of course, had, and Bobby Darin had, had big hits with Mac the Knife. And there were reviews um, of Brecht songs uh, and, and Dylan's girlfriend, uh, uh, Susie Rotelow, was involved in uh, putting on a kind of off-Broadway Brecht review. And he, he writes in his memoir of going in in the afternoon and watching the rehearsals. And he was particularly taken by the Pirate Jenny song which is kind of high, one of the high points of the Three Penny Opera, where this servant servant girl speaks about how she is exploited in this rotten hotel, and she has this dream that one day a pirate ship is going to sail in and blow the whole thing to bits, and she's going to sail away. Well, that Dylan writes um, uh, Dylan writes a song called "The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll," which is one of his most beautiful and moving sort of quote unquote protest songs. Which is about, which is really written. It's about the death of a, a of a black serving woman at the hands of a white racist, and it's it's this idea of writing from the perspective of the victim. That's, I mean, that's obviously Brecht didn't invent that, uh, Dylan didn't invent that, but um, but uh, we know. I mean, he said this that he he based that song on the Pirate Jenny song. Uh, he also has another song called "When the Sh- When the Ship Comes In" from the. Uh, times they are changing album, which is also about a ship sailing into the harbor and blowing everybody up. So he was very influenced, or he was very struck by those songs. But what's interesting to me is that you know what characterizes Brecht's theater, and also his you know his theoretical writings about the theater, which are easily available and circulating all over the place in paperback, <clears throat> is that Brecht is Brecht is always talking about showing a story on the stage and also commenting on the story as he shows it. So, you know, you go to a Brecht play and there will be a drama on the stage and then there will be uh, the signs, super titles, which will, which will comment on what's going on. So you have this kind of double 
um, double message that's being given, the story of the characters and the kind of ironic or often sarcastic commentary, which is sort of tell, trying to get you to think about what you're seeing on the, on the stage. So it's a very avant-garde kind of the, theatrical approach. And I think that Dylan does that a lot. I think he, 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 he often want, he, he tells us a story, but he often is commenting on the story as he tells us. And in fact, in The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, he gives us the story of the death of Hattie Carroll, which is a terrible story. Um, but uh, at the end of every verse, he has this chorus where he says, you who, who, who philosophize disgrace and criticize all fear, take the rag away from the face, your face. Now ain't the time for your tears. And so he's commenting on the story and telling us how we're supposed to respond to it. And then when you get to the end of the story, what really bothers Dylan is the miscarriage of justice because the guy who killed Hattie Carroll is not punished. And he says, now is the time to cry. So it's like the story, the, the song has two stories. It's the story of Hattie Carroll and the story of our response to Hattie Carroll. And I think mm -hmm. he does that a lot in, in some of the protest songs where he's always turning to the reader or the listener. I say reader because I'm a literary critic uh, in my day job, but he's always turning to the listener and saying, you know, listen, pay attention. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, he's clearly aware. That, I mean, even in blowing in the wind, right? The answer, my friend is blowing in the wind, right? He turns to us um, after he asks all these big questions. So he's he's always in a kind of dialogue dialogue relationship to his listeners, and I think that carries that carries through a lot of his work. And so that seems very to me. It seems very Brechtian. I mean, that's a silly thing to say because, I mean, who's to say that he got it from Brecht or he or that Brecht's the only person who does that kind of stuff? And he probably could have gotten it from any number of Appalachian murder ballads. But it's certainly <laughs> a characteristic of his work, and I yeah. think it's worth. No and it's again the. The, my my goal in the book is just to point these things out and say, you know, pay attention to the to the way, you know, his his protest songs are different than Phil Oaks's protest songs. Why? Well, that kind of self consciousness, that kind of dialogue with the listener, there's a kind of sophistication there that other writers don't have, and mm -hmm. so it's worth paying attention to. That's all. That, I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in the book is just get people to notice things. It's a book about noticing. Yeah, so you talked a bit about Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, and that I, I love that chorus, but I've never known what to make of the first two lines of the chorus when it says, you who philosophize disgrace and criticize all fear. I can't think of anybody <laughs> that I would use those words to describe. What's he, what's he up to in those two lines of the chorus? Uh, I'm not sure, but we could speculate or I could speculate that he's, he's, you know, he's thinking about a particular kind of fairly comfortable sort of left-wing, uh, <clears throat> politically liberal, progressive kind of uh, ideology that says, well, we can explain what's happening. We can explain, you know, I can tell you this is just all about racism. It's all about this. And in fact, it's not all about racism. Uh, it's not all. In fact, the whole point of the song is that, it, that the crime is not that William Zanzinger kills Hattie Carroll. The crime is, I mean, that's a crime, but the crime that Dylan cares about is the fact that he's not punished. It's the miscarriage of justice. Uh, when, I mean, everybody, anyone can commit a crime, anyone can run over somebody, or there could be an accident, but, but when that happens, there should be fairness in the courts. And that idea of the miscarriage of justice and the condemnation of judges and the attack on the miscarriage of justice 
is a, is one of the few themes that Dylan pursues really relentlessly across all of his work. If we think of a song like Hurricane from 1976, mm-hmm. right? Um, or in in uh, in um, Joker Man in 1983, where he says, false-hearted judges dying in the webs that they spin. This idea that the judge is, is really the culprit. That's, I think, what he's after in Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. And so he says, you know, don't just go in and say, oh, it's racist. Don't philosophize disgrace. Don't just go and say, oh, it's racism. Uh, you know, don't criticize fear. The real crime here is systemic. And that's an interesting thing about a lot of those songs in on um 1962-63, some of the so-called protest songs, is that his critique, again, and it, it, I think it distinguishes him from a lot of other people, his critique is often systemic. It's about how the system has gone wrong, how, 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 how Congress has gone wrong, how the justice system has gone wrong. It's, it, it, it's finger pointing, but it's not finger pointing at particular people. It's finger point. And uh, I mean, the best example of this, probably the most notorious example, is the song Only a Pawn in Their Game, which is about the guy who killed the civil rights leader, Medgar Evers. And I mean, this was very controversial at the time. And Dylan says, you know, it wasn't really his fault. I mean, yeah, he was a right, white racist and yeah, he killed Medgar Evers. But what about the the businessmen? What about the congressmen? What about the mm-hmm. corrupt judges? What about all the people who made this thing happen? So Dylan's, Dylan's critique is often... In these very, and he has another song uh, from the same period that, w- that was only released much later called um, called uh, "Who Killed Davy Moore," which is about the death of a boxer, and and you know, and the question is, who killed Davy Moore? Well, the guy who killed Davy Moore isn't the guy who who hit him, who punched him in the head. Yeah, out. it's the manager, it's the banker, it's the guy who's taking bets, and so he's always interested in this kind of larger critique. Um, and so the way in which he creates a kind of dialogue between the the human drama of people dying, beating each other up, suffering on the one hand, and these kind of bigger socio-political issues, again, that's w- what I at least call the kind of Brechtian aspect of Dylan, which is to kind of to get us working on two levels at once and thinking about the song on on two different levels. Yeah, and Brecht's always kind of encouraging us to see the characters not as these psychologically realistic, uh, you know, representations of a real right. person, but as a, a, an instantiation of a, a social class oftentimes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one way in which you make things bigger, right? And Dylan's, Dylan's, Dylan's art is all about a sort of capaciousness of imagination, of making things seem bigger than they are um, so that we can see the whole scope of human experience. And um, I think that's one of the ways in which he does it. We've touched a bit on the kind of later deal in the last 30 years since uh, the early 90s, but I want to return to that. And and because I, th- I think that's really a, a fascinating period in his career. I think that there are so few artists of his generation who've had anything like that kind of late career rebirth. I mean, I think of Leonard Cohen, Neil Young, and then the list kind of stops. <laughs> Um, so in, in many ways, those albums do feel like a return to form. And I remember, you know, Modern Times, I think it's 2006. And I started listening to that right as I was getting into the mid 60s Dylan. And it seemed like it was obviously the same guy, you know, sort of 40 years apart. Um, but what's new about his songwriting in, in the later the later stuff, sort of the last, you know, five albums? Um, I think... Uh, it's a much, di- at least I I, th- I think of Love and Theft, 
Well, all, through, all of those albums. I mean, I'm very close to the album Modern Times. I'm glad you were listening to it. I, I've yeah. become uh, uh, kind of amazed at that album again and again. It's so it's so uh, beautiful and and dense. And uh, but um, it seems to me that he develops a different kind of writing style than he had earlier. Uh, he's very interested in quotations, right? He's very interested in citing other people. So there are songs. I mean, there's a song on Modern Times called When the Deal Goes Down, which is literally <laughs> a rewriting of the signature tune from Bing Crosby called When the Blue of the Night Meets the Gold of the Day. That was Crosby, the, Crosby's first big hit. Dylan just takes the melody and steals it. Um, and that's quite different from taking an old Woody Guthrie song and readapting it because this is pop music now. Um, I don't know if he got sued for stealing the melody, but I mean, there's no doubt. Or there's another song, which is a clear rewriting of Red Sails in the Sunset. And you can't not notice that if you know anything about the pop, the history of popular song. So he's taking these bits of these kind of fragments of other people's creation. And that's maybe to get back to your earlier question about postmodernism. That's maybe where he does come closer to the to the kind of fragmented nature of a lot of postmodern work. Uh, he said at the time of modern uh, times that he he said he feels like he's walking around in a field of ruins, um, and and there is this kind of sense that it's the kind of detritus of culture, and that he depicts these stories of people who are who are isolated or alienated, who don't have a job, whose towns have fallen apart. I mean, I think Working Man's Blues Number Two is one of the most compelling evocations of the kind of crisis of the of the heartland, which we're now all very familiar with after Trump. Um, but Dylan got there first and writes about what it's like to to want to work and not be able to work or to not be able to make a living, even if you do work, because, uh, you know, we have to compete abroad, as he says. And so we, we can't pay decent wages. Um, but those songs are shot through with with citations, with quotations um, that are that are that are obvious. But it's not the same kind of it's not the kind of name dropping he was doing back in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite different. He's using other people's language. So he has a song um, uh, on Modern Times, I think it's on Modern Times, or maybe Love and Theft, called Summer Days. Summer Days and Summer Nights are gone, um, in which right in the middle of the song, he inserts a sentence from um, from F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, The Great Gatsby. Word for word, he just takes a line from The Great Gatsby right. and puts it into the middle of the song. And so you say to yourself, you know, what's what's that about um uh why is he doing that uh uh he wants us to think about and it's a song about memory and he wants us to think about memory and it's a moment in the novel where gatsby uh where where um nick carraway the the narrator is thinking about memory and what it means to lose the past and so right in the middle of the song dylan inserts this line so it's it's a kind of fragmentary fragmented kind of writing where he'll jump from scenario to scenario, you know, he'll, one minute he'll be talking about lost love. The next minute he'll be talking about running from the police. The next minute he'll be talking about being on his knees and praying to God. And he doesn't try to connect all these things up into any kind of single narrative. It's almost like they're sort of bits of information that kind of zoom past us and that we're supposed to kind of make sense of ourselves. Um, so it's a very disjointed kind of writing, I think. I mean, I, I don't think he's, I think he's, I think he's moved past that phase and he's doing something a little bit different with the new album, Rough and Rowdy Ways. But 
um, that's my take, at least on those early, late 1990s, early 2000 records. I don't know if that's your impression as well. Yeah, that seems right. Yeah. Um, And uh, one song you didn't mention, Rolling and Tumbling, is also a a riff on uh, Muddy Waters as well. So he's he's going back to those electric, those kind of Chicago blues that he mined in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the electric blues is a great form for him because you can go, first of all, you can go on and on and on. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no form. It's not like a pop song where you have, you know, it's not like just like a woman where you have two verses, a bridge and a third verse, you know, which mm-hmm. conforms to the kind of Tin Pan Alley model of writing with the blues. You can go on for 20 minutes if you want. And, and as we know, some of the earliest blues songs often have two or three narratives sort of running at the same time. And you're never really sure sort of what's going on. And he, and that serves him very well. I think that blues tradition and kind of citation is a big part of the blues as well. You'll, you'll take a line and you'll put it into a new context and suddenly it means something completely different. That's very Dylan-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Now at the same time that he's releasing this remarkable run of albums where he's kind of reinventing his songwriting, he also releases six cover records. (laughs) Like he's got the two folk records you talked about earlier, but he also has uh, a Christmas album and three albums of standards. What do you, and you write about the, I mean, you know, I, I think if I were writing this book uh, and I don't mean this at all as criticism, but I might just be tempted to kind of skip those, but you don't want to do that. Why do you feel like it's important to, uh, to think about what he's up to on those records? He's a great singer. Um, he is a great singer. Uh, You're going to surprise some people with that. (laughs) He may not have a traditionally beautiful voice. He may not sound like, you know, Tony Bennett. But he's a great singer and he can get inside a song, his own song or anybody else's song, in a way that nobody can really. Um, and uh, I think that would be part of it, maybe. I think I think with the albums of standard, I mean, I don't know what to make of the Christmas album. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. It's really goofy. <laughs> and but I have friends, you know, I just got an email from a friend of mine in the in the UK. Uh, who's a big Dylan fan and knows a lot about Dylan. And he, you know, he was said, I just was listening to the Christmas album recently and I, you know, I can't believe it. It's so great. It's so great. So I should, obviously I have to listen to it more carefully than I have. But, but as far as the, the kind of standards albums, right. That he released in the, in the 2000 teens, right. Uh, Shadows in the night, triplicate, um, fallen angels. Is that what the other one's called? I think so. I think so. You know, I mean, there are a number of things you can say about that. One thing you can say is that, you know, these were songs associated with Frank Sinatra, also known as Old Blue Eyes. And Bob Dylan is the new Old Blue Eyes because he's, uh, you know, the blue-eyed kid. And and he's really claiming those songs in some way for his own. He's remaking them in his own image. I mean, it's hard to listen to Young at Heart without thinking of Sinatra, but Dylan's version of it is fabulous. Uh, and, and, and you take us, I mean, I write a little bit about Young at Heart in the book, when you take Dylan's version of Young at Heart, which is, you know, a song about how great it is to be young at heart and you, you don't grow old if you're young at heart. And when Sinatra sings it, you say, oh, this is all the optimism of the 1950s. You know, it's great. You know, it's great. And he sort of, he sort of, you know, zooms through the song very happily. When Dylan sings it with his broken down voice sort of growling at you, it's a very different song. It's mm-hmm. It's a very wise piece of advice about how to live your life stay young at heart and so so those songs just by virtue of the different voice 
take on different different kind of intonations and different kind of meanings. So I, that's one of the things. So it's a chance to take that Tin Pan Alley songwriting model. And of course, Dylan loves good songs. I mean, any anything that's great, he's interested in. And he's recorded or performed, you know, everything, uh, including yesterday. <laughs> um, so uh, so um, it's a chance to take that body of work, which is so great, the great so-called Great American Songbook of George Gershwin and Harold Arlen and Cole Porter, and rework it in his own voice and give those songs new meaning. And also, I and I think this is one of the things that's definitely worth thinking about. These are often songs that are, we think of as jazz tunes or as Broadway tunes. They're often performed in in very sophisticated arrangements with a big orchestra. Certainly in Sinatra's case, his, it was he was working with the great composer or the great arranger Nelson Riddle. Um, you know, big productions. Dylan takes his little country band. You know, there are five or six of them. You know, with a steel guitar and a you know upright bass and a drum set and a piano. And he makes those songs his own. And so now, after those records, sort of every bar band <laughs> up and down the Central Valley of California can play Young at Heart, uh, following in Dylan's footsteps. So it's almost as if he's taken these songs and made them into folk songs, uh, whereas mm -hmm. they're the opposite of what we would think they would be as folk songs, right? He's made them into country songs, whereas we would not think of them as country songs. We would think of them as as the property of Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra or Robert Goulet or, you know, whoever it is, Peggy Lee. Do you think that the time that, uh, I, I'm, well, let me rephrase that. Do you see the influence of that style of songwriting on the new record, Rough and Rowdy Ways? Wow, that's a great question. Um, it just strikes me that he's been spending so much time with these songs over the past 10 years. And then he comes out with this album that really sounds, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Murder Most Foul doesn't sound like anything else he's ever he's right. ever written and the arrangement is gorgeous but it, it it sounds nothing like you know rolling tumbling yeah great great point um i hadn't thought of it in those contexts i mean i certainly noticed that the sound is quite different so we hear for the first time ever on a bob dylan album the sound of an of a nylon string so-called classical or spanish guitar on um on the first song, uh, I Contain Multitudes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that nylon, that Latin guitar sound that we associate with Leonard Cohen, actually, who played a nylon string guitar. Dylan is always the guy who plays the jingle jangle guitar. So we get a different sound. We get voices in the background. Um, in fact, a friend of mine sent me an email and said, I think this is his homage to Leonard Cohen. He's got a nylon string guitar and he's got voices yeah. in the background the way Leonard always had. Um, uh, and, you know, other kinds of instrumentation. And then this beautiful thing on Murder Most, Most Foul of the the bow, there's a cello, I guess there's a cello in there. And then there's the 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 bass, the, the double bass is bowed rather than plucked. I guess, I assume that's Tony Garnier, who's his great bass player doing that. Um, the, again, as you say, this is not, Dil this is not classic Dylan bar band arrangement. It's something much more, uh, much more sophisticated. I don't want, want to use the word sophisticated, but but it's just a different sound. And obviously, he's after something else in that song in particular, which is a kind of great historical fresco and and this kind of recapitulation of American history and 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 takes the takes this this catastrophic event that many people have more or less forgotten and explores the way in which it shapes who we are today. And I would point out to you, since we're um, we're having this conversation on the 
5th of November, that this past weekend was the anniversary of JFK's death. And mm. it was not mentioned anywhere in the press, either on TV or in the New York Times, or the Washington Post. Every year since I've been around, when, J- when the anniversary of JFK's uh, assassination comes, they mention it. Uh, and nobody that I was able to see paid any attention to it because we're obviously totally preoccupied with all these other things. Um, and so that event, is, as important as it was, uh, has some is now starting to, at least in the current moment, recede into um, oblivion. And and Dylan, I mean, the, the astonishing achievement of that song is that Dylan makes it in some way a, a real turning point in American history in a way that I had, I mean, I was around. I'm old enough to have been around at that time. I didn't, I mean, I, I knew it was a bad thing that the president had been shot, but Dylan's reading of it is that it's sort of the beginning of the end for the whole country. And that's a very yeah. powerful um, piece of sort of uh, historical interpretation and, uh, you know, almost kind of philosophy of history, if you want to put it in very grand terms. And, I know you right, don't want to. Different. Yeah. I know you don't want to go into the biographical uh, critical mode, but it also strikes me. I mean, that's 63, right? That Kennedy's shot. I mean, that's that's about the moment when Dylan's starting to turn away from those very idealistic, earnest early protest songs and explore something a little darker and more more complicated. I wonder if that you could almost read it as, you know, the 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 pivotal moment for him personally. Yeah, yeah. he'll never great. tell us, but yeah, could be. No, yeah, great point. But no, great point. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right that he's beginning to see that writing these kind of simple finger pointing songs is not really the way to do art. And and as you know, in that song. He brings the whole panoply of American music to bear on uh, on the kind of both the grieving and the healing process for the, of the death of JFK, where he says, you know, play Stan Getz, play Nat King Cole, play, you know, this, play that. I mean, it, it, he doesn't say, you know, play Hank Williams and play my play my influences. He says, play everything. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's indicative, of course, of his extraordinary knowledge of of American music, but also the sense that um, that that yeah that that's the moment where you have to begin looking beyond your own little self and your own little world, you know, Greenwich Village or whatever. Well, Timothy Hampton, it's been really great to talk to you about your book, Bob Dylan: How the Songs Work. Um, I've taken up a lot of your time already, but thanks so much for being on the program. It's been my pleasure, Andy. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for. Uh, for looking at the book and thanks for your very thoughtful and informed question. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it.